turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And as you well know, we are coming to the Lord's table this morning. And one of the things that um, traditionally has not been uh, unusual, in fact, very common for Presbyterians down through time, is to either read the Ten Commandments or look at a commandment as one way to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are before we come to his table. So this morning, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and give a few uh, reflections on this passage so we can prepare our hearts and minds to come to the Lord's table. But before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help and your blessing. As we have been reminded through prayer, And through praise, you are our power. You are our help. You are our hope. Lord, we, the the last thing we want to do this morning is just do the motions, just sort of do church. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. We pray that when your word is, is read and your word is preached and we, we meet as a family of believers at your table, that you would meet with us. Lord, we live in a, a hard, broken, fallen, sinful world, and yet in the midst of it we have joy and peace and wonder and love Amazing love from an amazing God. So we pray that you would come through your word, uh, through your elements at the table and meet with us that we might know you, live for you, grow in you, and walk with you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this is one of those commandments that's not quite as concrete as some of the others. You may think you have a sense of knowing what it means, but there's so much here. For example... Everybody knows, I think, who's been around for any length of time, that names open doors, right? Hey, so-and-so sent me. So-and-so told me to call. So-and-so told me to talk to you. I come in the name of so-and-so. When I was a young pastor, 
very young pastor, didn't know much of anything. An older pastor in Texas, in Dallas, took an interest in me. I obviously, I, I needed... I needed help, but what was particularly fascinating about this man, he had a wonderful ministry in a church there in Dallas, but he was also the, the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. And the chaplain for the Texas Rangers. And so occasionally I would get to go and do a chapel service for the Texas Rangers. Never got to do the Cowboys, but boy, he had a, he had a Super Bowl ring. And he took me and mentored me, and here's how it would work. On a Sunday morning, typically a Sunday morning, when the Rangers were playing in the afternoon, I'd drive up to the ballpark and I'd go to a certain gate. And I would walk up to that gate and the security people were wondering, you know, they would initially wonder who I was, what I was doing there. And they'd look at me as I was walking up to the gate, ready to no doubt say, sir, you can't get in now, or a ballpark's not open. And I would walk up and I would say, I am here with John Weber. I am here with John Weber. And they would walk back and get on the phone and the gate would open. And John Weber would come down. And we would go anywhere we wanted to go. We would go in the dugout. We would go in the manager's offices. We would go in the locker room. In fact, I would, I cringe now at what I even said to these ball players, but I would go in the manager's office, sit on the desk, and they would come in the manager's office and sit around and stand around the wall there and listen to me talk. Who would do that? And then they would, at the end of this little chapel service devotional, they would stand in a line and shake my hand. And it had absolutely nothing to do with me or anything I said or any or, or, or knowing anything about what I was even talking about. And I would do it with the home team and the visitors team. It had everything to do with the name. John Weber. John Weber. And I had that opportunity a, a number of times. I was invited. I was welcomed in the name of John Weber. Now, if that's true in the 20th century, 21st century, it's even more so in the ancient world. You know, for, for many of us, we may not, you know, we may not even know what our name means. We know, may not know where it comes from. We don't particularly care where it comes from. Is my name Old English or French? Uh, is it Middle Eastern or African? Many of us don't know. We don't particularly care. But in the ancient world... Not so. A name revealed something essential and basic and deep about my identity. About who I am. You know, we may know, you know, I'm named after my dad or granddad or my grandmother or my aunt or, you know, but I don't know. Some of you may. Um... There's your assignment for the afternoon. What does your name mean? I remember 
in years ago being challenged with this very question, what does your name mean? And I was so longing, you know, we all long, son of a noble warrior, follower of God, man of strength. You know what my name means? Bradford, broad, shallow place where you cross water. Broad ford, broad fjord, broad shallow place where you cross water. You know what my last name means? Mercer? Merchant. Broad shallow place where you cross water merchant. At least my wife's name, Cynthia. This is great. She, I don't know where she is. Oh, she's going to kill me. Moon goddess. Moon goddess, what does your name mean? In the ancient, you know, we we get to know people and we try to remember their, their names and we don't often know, you know, we don't know what they mean. We don't know what other people's names mean. But again, in ancient cultures, many ancient cultures were reticent. People were reticent to even give you their name upon first meeting you because it was going to reveal something essential about you and your identity. I don't really know you yet. I'm not going to tell you my name. Very, very different world. Adam means man or mankind. Eve means life giver. Moses means draw out of water. David means beloved or friend. We could go on. There are a number of times in the, in the Bible that God changes people's names because they have changed. And He has changed them. And He has pursued them. Abram goes from Abram, meaning, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, father of nations. Sarai goes from being princess to Sarah, mother of nations. Names mean something. And of course, every time God is named something in the Bible, it reveals something essential about who He is. About His identity. Elohim. Strong One. Adonai. My Lord. El Shaddai. God Almighty, powerful to bless. You remember when God met Moses, pursued Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. He's now going to reveal another name, the name that will be used for God more than any other name in the Bible. For the first time in history, he said, he's called Moses. You're going to lead my people out from slavery. You're going to give them my law. And Moses says, who should I tell them told me? Who should I tell them sent me? What's your name, God? What's your name? If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is His name? What shall I say? 
And God gives this very unusual name. Many of you remember it. I am who I am. I am. This is my name forever. I am who I am. God is speaking to Moses as a covenant God, as a friend, someone who is going to build a relationship with him. But he says, Moses, never forget that everybody else that's ever lived has been given a name by somebody else except for me. I name myself. I name myself. I will not be defined by anything outside of myself. Here's the core of this. What is this. So what does this commandment mean? Here it is. Joy Davidman in her wonderful little book called Smoke on the Mountain, a study of the Ten Commandments, says this about the third commandment. The third commandment is not just, and get this, the third commandment is not just a warning against profanity. It is much more like a warning we see at power plants. Danger, high voltage. And where there is power, men will try to use it for their own ends, good and bad. This commandment is essentially about my and your attitude toward God. My disposition toward God. My approach to God. Your disposition toward God. Your approach and your attitude toward God. That's what this is getting at. So, for a few minutes, as we prepare for the table, let's talk about the wrong use, or some wrong uses of the Lord's name. And let's talk about some right uses of the Lord's name. Wrong uses, right uses. Keeping this in mind. Keeping this table in mind. How do we use the Lord's name in the wrong way? Well, obviously the most, <laughs> the most obvious one would be the words that come out of our mouths that use His name in cursing. When somebody says Jesus or God in a flippant way that curses him. Isn't it amazing? And there's something, there's, there's something profound and deep going on in, in a statement like that that we would care not to admit. But that's the most obvious one. Nobody ever says, oh, Zeus, Jupiter. They say Jesus. Or they say God in anger and frustration. Another one. Um, Casual, let's call it casual God talk. Casual, the way we might throw around. Well, God told me. God said to do this. God spoke to me. I, I was... Again, years ago, I, I was very convicted by someone. I was sitting with an older pastor, and, a, and a per, we were sitting with a person in need, and, 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 and I said, well, I pray for you all the time. And this 
pastor right next to me said, well, I, I don't pray for you all the time, but I pray for you a lot, and you're on my list. I didn't pray for that person all the time. When we say, I'll pray for you, when we say, God did it, when we say, God told me, all those things that are good, by the way, when we say, it's a God thing, all those, that's fine. Be careful. It's God we're talking about. Be careful. It's God. Um, I don't know how many of you, I know some of you have, um, have watched the, the Crown, the series that's on Netflix, a little free advertising there. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's pretty good. I know a number of you have watched it. It's the story of young Queen Elizabeth that suddenly, as a very, very young woman, loses her father in his 50s to cancer, and suddenly she's Queen of England. At 25 years old, and what's fascinating about her story is her coronation in Westminster Abbey in 1953 was the first coronation of a monarch like that that was ever televised. She's 25 years old. She's sitting on a throne. 20 million people are watching. And the weight of the world falls on her shoulders. And um, C.S. Lewis watched this. I remember reading C.S. Lewis given an account. He's watching this on TV. And he looks at this and says, here's this young girl in this big throne with all these important people surrounding her. And this beautiful big throne, this beautiful big crown is placed upon her as she's sitting on the throne. And... He immediately, his thoughts immediately go to all the wonderful, beautiful, amazing, profound gifts that God puts on to us. And how in the world can we ever be apathetic about any of those good gifts that God gives us? And we could go on and on about what they are. How could we be casual? How could we be apathetic or indifferent one more um, again using God's God's name another way that we do this using God's name for our purposes um, God told me that it's okay to fill in the blank and you know he didn't and you know you shouldn't but you say God told me to but you say God told me to Jesus refers to this commandment in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, and he says this, Not everyone, this is Jesus, this is the real Jesus, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many great works and mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Uh, 
And I will say to them, I never knew you. What's Jesus saying? Look, you can know a lot of stuff, you can do a lot of stuff, and you can be very passionate about it, while all the while not knowing Jesus as your Savior personally. Even being in the context of lots of religious stuff, or going to church, or working as a part of ministry, you might know some stuff and feel strongly about some stuff and do some stuff and not know Jesus. That's what he's saying. So how do we use the Lord's name in the right way? How do we approach him in the right way? How do we come to him in the right way? You remember the famous story, we all know it in Daniel 3, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this powerful earthly king whom these men serve, builds an idol and says, at this particular time, on this particular day, you will worship this golden idol that I have built. You will bow down and you will worship. Now, they had served faithfully. They they had served this king faithfully, but they draw the line here. And if you do not, if you don't worship, you'll be thrown into the fire. You remember the story. Of course, they're thrown into the fire And they don't burn up, and they come out. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is not, first and foremost, you guys are amazing. Your faith is amazing. His first response, if you look at Daniel 3.28, is, your God is amazing. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted him. What a God! What an amazing God! You see, let's put it this way. This, This commandment is not essentially about bad words. It's about bad lives. If you're a Christian, you have, you have taken on the name of Christ. Christ-ian. He is your ID. He gets you through security. You are His ambassador. And you take His very name upon yourself to describe yourself. I was... I was very moved uh, in talking to Rachel Reese, who was here last week. She's the violinist who's the missionary in Japan. And she was saying she knew of of a musician who was a conductor, Japanese, in Japan that was actually conducting a piece of music written by a Christian. uh, And and the, the content of this music was the death of Jesus Christ. And conducting it, playing it, reading it, he became a believer. A piece of music called St. Matthew Passion, all about the death of Jesus. And through that, through the, the gifts and the beauty and the creation of this piece of music, he became a believer. But how is it possible to, to walk around and take on the name of Christ? 
to have our lives point to Jesus, our words and our actions point to Jesus. And here's what we is is fundamental, and we need to remember that all the blessings, all the promises that are associated with every name and every description of God in the Bible, all the promises, all the blessings that are associated with any and every name and description of God in the Bible are ours in Jesus Christ. Think of just a few of them. Emmanuel. He's with you. Savior. He saves you. Son of man. Jesus is the Son of man. He understands you. He has become one of us. Wonderful counselor. He comforts you. Prince of peace. He's the source of your peace. Mighty God. He is the source of your power and your strength. I'll close with this as we come to the table. One of the hardest decisions that Cindy and I ever had to make a few years back, along with our son, many of you know that we are a, a military family, it's been quite a, quite a ride, but one of the hardest decisions we ever had to make is to sit down with our son, Harrison, who's doing great. He lives in Colorado. He's married, and he, he's a believer, and he has two sons. By the way, he's, he's fine. But one of the hardest decisions we had to make when he was going to his first deployment, we sat down with him and Cindy and me and were asked, if something happens to him, Where do you want him buried? And we had several options. But as soon as we found out, (laughs) it's a hard conversation, but as soon as we found out, one option was Arlington Cemetery. We said, we'll do Arlington Cemetery. Now, if you've ever been to Arlington Cemetery, you drive into... Arlington Cemetery. It's a quite a place, um, very moving. But off to the right, as you drive into Arlington Cemetery, there's a very large monument to the United States Marines. It's been there for quite a while, and it it memorializes the Marines, but particularly the Marines and their their victory at Iwo Jima. As you drive in, you've all seen it. The Marines are like this, and they're planting, a number of them, six of them, are planting a flag on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. So what's the big deal? Number one, Mount Suribachi would have been and was going to be the very first official Japanese territory that the Marines were going to take. So it's an essential place to win. So they're going to hold it at all costs. And there's this group of men, once they land, the key point on this island, in order to defeat this island, in order to capture this island, is Mount Suribachi. So a, a marine regiment of guys who are in their early 20s are told, go up that mount and take it 
and plant the flag. And so they do. They go up through uh, all kinds of tunnels and mines and booby traps and they, they make it to the top of Mount Suribachi and they plant the flag and two things happen. Number one, they plant that flag, they draw fire. <laughs> they draw fire from the enemy. Number two, they hear cheering from all over the island and from the battleships offshore. Why? Because victory is assured. But the battle goes on. You know where I'm going. For us as believers, our victory is that planted cross that we look at, that we stare at, that we know has conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death. But the battle goes on. Three of the men that raised that flag were killed in the next month. But victory for you, Christian, is assured because of the cross. Victory for you is assured because on the cross, sin and death are defeated. And that's the victory that is the most important victory of all. What's the very last verse in the Bible? Anybody know the very last verse of the Bible? Here it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What's the very last word in the Bible? Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How sweet the sound of, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Dear name. The rock on which I build my shield and hiding place. My never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. That's the promise. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. And even, you know, even as we take communion, You might say to yourself, just say to yourself, Jesus. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, your word, that gets to the heart of our attitude and our approach and our disposition toward you. We pray that with our tongues and in our lives, people would see you and they'd recognize you on us and you in us. We would find our greatest and deepest identification in you and with you and and not in the many, many things that come our way that say you are this or you are this or you are this or you are this or you are this. No, we are first and foremost Christians. 
And we are Christians by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remembering the wonderful promise of the very last word, Amen, and the very last verse in the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us, especially now, as we approach you, as we come into your presence, as we meet you at the table. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.